Friends, here we are with another episode of the Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A, all driven by you, your questions, your queries, your statements, your rants, your resubmissions, those, some of those mildly hostile saying, hey, Pruitt, you idiot, get to the question I sent in. Well, we got plenty for you again, more than enough questions to deserve two episodes Guess I should probably apologize up front. Intended to get to both episodes last week, only got to one. So what we've done, courtesy of our pal Tim Falkowitz, who puts together the question lists for me, is we've rolled in, I think, a lot of the really good ones from part two into this week. So going to try and do my best to make up. And yeah, you've all sent in some great stuff. Obviously, for those living here in North America, uh, things were not super happy last week. And I know a number of folks, myself included, are still a little bit shaky. So, you know, what we're going to do, do a little bit different this week. Going to try and mix things up and do something a little bit serious question, then maybe a lighter-hearted question try and make things a little breezier a little easier that's the goal this week super quick update up front and it's not a real update other than saying i think the fourth edition of my silly season tracking should be going up here on a racer very shortly uh but that's not what i wanted to tell you about just wanted to take a very brief moment to give our two friends of the show uh, two dear friends of the show, Louise Smith. She has been fighting and fighting admirably, fighting ovarian cancer. And A, I miss having Louise's questions come in for the show, but that's because she's busy taking care of herself, taking care of everything that is most important on the home front so that she can live a long and awesome and amazing life. So Louise just wanted to say, we love you. We are pulling for you. If you get a chance on Twitter, on Facebook, two places where she is active, uh, just give her some love because (laughs) I could just tell you from our own experience, which continues to, uh, we're now in year three of our own cancer fight. Uh, We're making great progress all the time, but depending on the type of cancer. Uh, Some of them can require many years of fighting. So Louise fortunately isn't too deep into that fight, and I hope that we'll be hearing some great news before too long that she has conquered cancer. Also just wanted to give some love to another friend of ours, Lynn Henderson Gale. Lynn, she lost her husband Jim, what, month, two months ago. I know that getting through the holidays was particularly rough. Also saw that there is a new puppy in her life. Beautiful, beautiful little pup. So uh, missing Jim, obviously, but just wanted to send more love to you, Lynn, uh, hoping that uh, this beautiful little pup will help help you transition into the next phase of your life. So, hey, we just want to uplift some of our friends and listeners to amazing women who are, right, going through some hardships. They aren't the only ones. We know that for sure. And any of you are going through whatever it is that is particularly troubling, just know you have a little community here that does care, will care, 
If you want to share your name and what you're going through, uh, either to be shared publicly on the show or just privately behind the scenes, I can tell you that we have uh, everyone from a pastor who is offered to not only deliver prayer but deliver counsel to those in need to just a really great group of folks, uh, all ages, all colors, religious denominations, political affiliations, uh, fans of Chevy teams, Honda teams, big, small, you name it. We have all manner of listeners here, and uh, there's a, a pretty solid base of, of IndyCar fans and those who are crazy enough to listen to this Week in IndyCar show who uh, are actually here to try and help. So uh, among the most thankful things that I have is, frankly, it's y'all and what you all do for one another and myself and my wife. So that's what I wanted to share up front. Uh, guess what? TorontoMotorsports.com. Love those good folks. They're going to have some T-shirts with our brand new Weekend IndyCar logos coming to you shortly. Might have already seen the first one. Throwback to 1990. That being John Andretti's Porsche 90, uh, Porsche March 90P chassis. Uh, just rolled out another one here. I think, what was it, 2002, Tony Kanon's Monon Racing Renard. And got one more coming. I'll roll it out for next week's show, and I love it. It might be my favorite. And who knows, maybe I'll keep asking our pal Roger Warwick to come up with more ideas. So, anyways, going to have some of those coming to torontomotorsports.com. Justice Brothers, so thankful to have them back now for year three. And guess what? Cooper Tires, yes, back for year four. Life is really good, and our partners are committed to us, love what we do, and yet again, it's all because of what y'all bring back. So thank you so much. Okay, guess what? Now we're going to get rolling. It's a escapism hour, hour, hour and a half, something like that. We'll see how long this episode takes, but um, let's get to some stuff that hopefully is fun and entertaining, informational, and since I'm involved, there'll be a, a fair amount of mindlessness to come here on my uh, the show I refer to as my Unpolished Turd, the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A Part 1. We're kicking off the nonsense. How are we kicking it off? Bobby Rooney. <laughs> you send one in here from the good old Facebook. Says a bit of a joke, but actually also a serious question. Juan Montoya has a ride for the Indy 500 with Air McLaren SP, but is he actually going to fit in the car? Says, I mean, the arrow screen is what it is. There's no widening the opening. Oh, man. We're starting it off by uh, throwing Montoya under the bus. Actually, it's perfect, Bobby. There are a few things that I enjoy in my profession than giving Montoya a hard time. That's just because I know he's going to do an even better job throwing it right back. Yeah. Uh, what did I see over the weekend? I think it was our, our man, Mr. Monterior in some sort of cycling, what do you call it, suit, gear, uh, some, you know, whatever the kind of wicking away moisture, uh, aerodynamically uh, material, whatever you want to call it, cycling get up, I don't know what you call it, blouse. We'll just call it a cycling blouse. And it was he was tagging whomever sent it to him, some sort of, I would assume they sent him, 20 of the jerseys or whatever for free and so he just uh 
took a photo of himself in it, a little selfie and tagged them and whatever. That must have been the, uh, the exchange. And I can just tell you that Connie remains to be one of the great cooks of all time. And of course I'm saying this as a fat guy, right? So, you know, I mean, come on, I can't, say too much about Juan and his weight because good Lord, uh, I'm certainly beating him in that regard. Um, so I know it's a joke. And so of course, poking fun at JPM. Well, that's always fun. Uh, truth be told the, uh, opening to the top of the car, the arrow screen aperture, uh, it's no different than the width of the chassis, uh, in terms of the cockpit itself. So, it is something that while it tapers inward and maybe gives the appearance when you're looking at it from the front uh, that it is indeed narrower than the tub without it, uh, it's not. So, yeah, uh, he'll fit. Um, now, getting him in, probably not as much of a problem. Getting him out, eh, we'll have to see. Sorry. Uh, Brian Burrell. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to try and do a little bit silly, a little bit serious, just try and keep this maybe a little lighter than normal. Uh, Brian Burrell, you say, hey, MP, uh, all sports are going through this, but with you, E, Pat Patrick dying, I realize that the generation that guided open-wheel racing in my youth is now starting to take life's checkered flag. How true is that, Brian? says, Pat was a true wildcatter in life and racing. Yep, oil man. says, any great stories you've heard or could share? Um, you know, I, I suffer in this area, Brian, because while working in the sport, while working in IndyCar for a number of teams, didn't really have an opportunity to get to know him or reason. And then when I transitioned into the media side, I was really no longer competing as an entrant. So I believe other than just the saying hello and passing a couple of times over the years, really don't have any uh, personal stories to share. Uh, And I'm also struggling to think of any stories that friends have shared about Pat I can just give you this one or two things, and it's just courtesy of uh, a pal, Steve Shunk, ace PR man. Uh, Number one, because while he was referred to as Pat, uh, his initials, U-E, preceded uh, Pat in most written, formally written things and whatnot. And I'm guessing it's just because if we're talking initials, U-E, it's a kind of a uncommon thing. Uh, our pal Steve Shunk, you always in and around the Indy 500, in the media center, walking around, whatever. Whenever somebody would uh, walk up, not all the time, but a friend would walk up or he would have a reason to cite someone's name, he'd just throw U-E in front of it. And it always led to just a great little chuckle. And it wasn't being mean to Mr. Patrick, of course, it's just, you know, uh, UE Jim Roeder, everybody. And, uh, yeah. And then we would try and, although I think we knew, but we would try and really come up with some good, uh, explanations for what UE stood for. Other thing too, and this is just shunk related is what 
three years ago, maybe, at the IndyCar memorabilia show, Indy 500 memorabilia show, the day before the 500, right behind the Pagoda, I happened to find what must have been a late 70s, if not super early 80s, Patrick Racing hat. And it's kind of a trucker hat and embroidered Patrick Racing logo and such on it. And uh, what is it? Uh, Ace of Spades or whatever. Um, whatever whatever it was. Um, and I happened to bring that up and Steve saw it. And he just about pooped his pants. Fell in love with it. Uh, and I'm like, awesome. You know, glad to see you love it so much. You know, I mean, just... I loved it. That's why I bought it. It was like 20 bucks. And while it's not a crazy amount of money, uh, you know, it maybe is for an old obscure hat. But I saw it. I loved it. Had to have it. The fact that it was kind of a trucker hat, too, just pushed it over the top. And so Steve fell in love with it. Uh, I obviously loved it and owned it. Took it home. Didn't think anything about it. Might have been a year later. Um, get this out of nowhere, I think it might have been an email or a text or something from Steve who just said, hey, if you ever come across one of those Pat Patrick hats, uh, let me know because I really want one. So when I turned up for the 2019 Indy 500, uh, I threw that into my luggage and uh, gave it to him. So not that that means anything, but as I get older... And I realize that I have a lot of possessions. I also realize that I should probably let more of them go. That's an active thing I'm working on at the moment right now. Stay tuned. But um, yeah, so this isn't has not really nothing to do with me. I'm just sharing the fact that uh, I love the fact that for Steve, Pat Patrick was always a fascinating character with the best initials and just the ability to possess and wear an old Pat Patrick racing trucker hat stuck with him uh well beyond the one and only time that he saw it in my possession and he i don't know if he's worn it since i think i might have seen a photo of him with it on but the thing that i just took away from all this brian is even though i knew of pat patrick followed his team and drivers and all that stuff for a long long time knew of his integral role in the formation of CART and so many other things, I've never really had any direct uh, anything with him other than not my brother, Scott Pruitt, driving for him. But I did love seeing how, you know, 20-ish years, 15, 20 years, after his last real engagement in the sport, good friend like Steve Shunk just still idolized the guy, thought so much of him, and just wanted to have a keepsake that delivered some sort of relevance back to his younger days uh, and his appreciation of Pat Patrick. So how cool is that, right? A guy who just really not on the radar. You get a lot of old team owners and drivers and whatnot who rock up every year Indy or some other races, and they stay fresh-ish in the little IndyCar lexicon. And I don't recall Mr. Patrick really doing that. And so in those instances, you often have someone who's forgotten a little bit. And yet he wasn't. And he also remains someone who is very important to a lot of people. So I'd say that stands out to me most of all, Brian. Um, 
pretty darn cool, I'd have to say. Uh, our pal, Rishi Despond. How you doing, Rishi? says, uh, Mo Mun. No Mun, actually, is uh, what we had on the uh, little driver pit board for our new second Week in IndyCar logo with Tony Kanon. Uh, no Mun, which is what our pal Roger Wart came up with. Uh, but anyway, says, hey, with the Dakar rally going on, have any IndyCar drivers ever competed or had success there? He says, I know Fernando Alonso ran it, but anyone else? I do recall Robbie Gordon in a day glow uh, off-road score type truck uh, with, I think, his energy drink Speed as the sponsor. I don't recall any others, though. And I'm not saying there aren't others. I'm just saying I don't remember them. So uh, that's the best I can do for you there, my friend. Uh, All right, we're going to go a little bit serious here. Uh, Adrian Thompson says, hey, sending this one back in. Um, Says a lot has been said by Zach Veach uh, that the biggest issue he had in IndyCar was the strength needed to turn the steering wheel. Says it sounds like he's been playing catch-up with the steering, especially wrestling on turn-in. This is possibly highlighted by his better results on ovals. Um, he says Formula One and I believe Formula Two have power steering, which is something missing from Indy cars. Do you or any drivers think that if if drivers had power steering, would Zach have had a better showing and still be in the series? So this is an interesting one, without a doubt. And I know that a couple of you have asked about this. So uh, just Adrian seemed to touch on all points, but thanks to everyone who sent in Zach Veach strength related questions um all right always try and give you the the inside behind the scenes stuff a little bit when possible um interviewed zach lax last week last week love zach always said that good friend of the show so outside of his profession as a person sincerely care for the guy interviewed zach and in that interview about his new opportunity with the uh, Vassar Sullivan Lexus IMSA team, he had gone into a little bit of the same routine, right? I didn't ask about it. It was unasked, but he went into the, you know, the transition here. I think this might work out a little bit more in my favor. The cars have power steering, which Indy cars don't, and I'm a smaller guy and so on and so forth. And I didn't use it because I didn't fully believe it. And that is that me calling Zach a liar? No, I don't feel like it is. It's not meant to be that way. Am I saying, well, how's this? Let's just get it, forget what I'm saying and not saying. I'll just say it. Uh, I am positive that there are places and venues during, you know, IndyCar's 17 race calendar where Zach would have felt like he had run out of strength or run out of physical endurance, muscular endurance. Uh, I'm positive that that did happen at times over his three-year full-time-ish career. I would struggle to point to that being the reason that Zach did not fully succeed in IndyCar. Now, I realize that not everyone is the same body type. Uh, Not everyone is is built the same. But I look at 
someone who I believe is smaller and probably within a very similar weight uh, range as well in Takuma Sato. And that guy who, again, I believe is actually smaller than Zach, he has no problem wrestling an IndyCar around. We know that Zach, in interviews that he did with me and others, when he was getting ready for IndyCar, said, hey, I'm putting on muscle. You know, I'm 118 pounds, I think. He was starting out something like that and got himself up over 130. So he put on, that's a lot of muscle, percentage-wise, to add. Um, But this is a guy who you could say not too dissimilar size-wise, muscle-wise than Takuma. And we don't, this isn't a topic of conversation with Takuma. So that makes me pull back a little bit on this. Where I also struggle to fully endorse this is if I look at the toughest place on the calendar, right? Every driver says, in terms of physical demand, the roughest, nastiest is mid-Ohio. You're always turning, your muscles are burning, your arms in particular, your core, just, you, you just, it's wearing you out. It's not as if Barber is a picnic, but mid-Ohio is usually the one that drivers point to and say, boy, that kicks your behind to a high degree. Um, Zach finished 10th there on his debut in IndyCar, full season, 2018. I'm not saying that 10th is an indicator that uh, he was he's as strong as a Ryan Hunter Ray or Graham Rahal, one of these 6'2", whatever uh, wide-frame muscular guys, but you don't finish 10th uh, at a mid-Ohio if you are lacking the physical tools to turn the car uh abuse the car and get performance out of it. Um, you look at a place like Iowa, right? And again, I know it's, it's an oval, but it's a bull ring drivers talk about being really worn out there as well. The guy performed exceedingly well at Iowa. Um, you look at some of the rougher places. I know the grip level might not have been insane, but Detroit, right? That's a lot of manhandling the car to get it around. Long Beach, uh, what, I think his best IndyCar finish or so, I think a fourth was what comes to mind. Um, You know, a 12th at Barber. Uh, Again, I realize these aren't thirds, fourths, and fifths, but if you're struggling to operate the vehicle due to physical limitations, I don't think we're talking about a 10th at Mid-Ohio and a 12th at Barber and so on and so forth. I think we're talking 18th to 20th to 22nd or 23rd because if you're having to give up performance each lap because you don't have the physical ability to extract ultimate performance, like the margins between <laughs> uh, what's needed and just being blown at, blown away, they're pretty small. So that's why, again, his record doesn't match the narrative so much and so i shared some insight with zach's group uh after the interview that look know that i love the guy 
I've, these questions have been coming in for a little while. I know that he gave that he shared this in at least one interview with my friends at dinner with racers. Just outside advice, friend to friend, stop it. Because A, I think it's going to come across as a little bit excuse-ish. And most of all, if you're stating that you want to get back to IndyCar at some point in time, even if it's just the Indy 500, painting yourself as too weak to get the job done is a great way for every team owner to shut you out mentally and just put you in that nope category. Ain't happening. Granted, you show up with you know a million bucks uh, to drive the Indy 500. I'm sure someone will take that money. But in terms of a real seat, and again, if that kind of money were floating around, you know, we'd probably be looking at some sort of IndyCar program for him right now. Um, this just comes back to a place, Adrian, where I don't fully buy it. And again, I'm not saying that there weren't points in time or places where he's like, geez, uh, I'm either running out of strength or uh, I don't know if I can get 100% out of the car right here, right now. But that isn't a sporadic thing, meaning like, oh, I had strength this one race and I finished well, which he did many, many times. Oh, I don't have strength. Oh, and I didn't. It's either a overarching problem or not. And I think it comes across, I know it comes across as a bit of an excuse. Look, man, it is really uncomfortable being dumped. That's what happened to him. That is what happened. We can get into all the how it wasn't right, and I've said that many times, and all the things about it where you go, that sucks, that's wrong, all those things. This is embarrassing. This is not happy. This is being, frankly, asked to leave in favor of someone else, and that never, ever, ever, ever feels good, obviously. And so... It's a little bit easier, I would say, to point to something else as a reason for why things didn't work out. Now, this part, again, uh, it's not the first time I've said it. It's not meant to be mean or cruel or anything else. Zach's story coming into IndyCar was of a super scrappy Indy Lights guy, right? Small, sure, we all know that. Not the first time a small driver uh, has has succeeded or done well uh, and gone up the ladder. But Zach didn't come in torching the Indy Light Series, knocking down everybody and just saying, I'm the man, get out of my way. Won some races, had some great bulldog drives in Indy Lights. Those are the things that stood out more than anything. Didn't come in as a champ to IndyCar, but he put in some real badass drives but i don't know if anyone myself included said hey other than winning a race maybe two over this three announced three-year deal i expect zach to come in and knock rossi new garden dixon whomever out of the way first year second year third and camp in the top three, top five, right? I would say if he had finished 10th or 11th in the championship, 
that would have been a pretty big positive. He finished 15th as a rookie. We know that his second year, things went seriously sideways. And we know that while trying to overcome things in his third and final year, great start at Texas, things started to go sideways again. So just say expectations. I never held Zach in a place, Adrian, to close where I thought world beater. He's going to just, boy, we're going to torch everybody because that wasn't demonstrated on the road to Indy. Presented by Cooper Tires, by the way. Uh, that wasn't shown on the road to Indy. Um, very talented, very capable race winner on occasion, but not a future champion. And in IndyCar, he definitely showed that there was a lot to learn, and he was learning quickly in that first year. And boy, uh, things got derailed and almost never got back on track. So to say that it was the physicality all along... I just don't take that as the full reason for why things did not pan out the way that they played out. And I hope that that's a narrative that he nips in the bud because I don't think it does himself any, uh, it only does a disservice going forward for prospective team owners in series where power steering isn't a thing. And also, I don't know if that just comes across as overly genuine. And I'm not the first person who has expressed such a thing about hearing this. So, uh, yeah, if power steering was in, I don't know how much better he would have done. I would just say it would probably be relative. If Scott Dixon has to work less hard, and Joseph Newgarden, and, 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 and. If the rest of Zach's rivals are able to exert less physical uh, energy and be fresher throughout the course of a race, I would think the gap would remain the same. I don't think Zach would magically jump up and all of a sudden be a force to contend with that he wasn't uh, beforehand. Great question, Adrian, and to all of you who sent that in. Thank you. And uh, for those of you who are Zach Feach fans, um, just continue giving him love. He's a great guy, and I do believe he has a great new chapter here, starting with the uh, AIM, AIM, geez, the Vassar Sullivan Lexus RCF GT3 team. Uh, Hire Lee says, hey, is there any news on IndyCar's two-seater program? Well, indeed, No. Not that I've heard, but the main thing that uh, I was told whenever it was announced that Honda would not be returning as the sponsor of that program, I uh, was told by IndyCar that uh, it'll continue. We just don't know who uh, who is going to be the sponsor, but yeah, um, super believe that everything will go forward like it has been just to spin the wheel of who's going to pay for it so that's what we know uh ryan terpstra you ask what's up with coin and carlin <sighs> ain't that the truth what is up with them ryan terpstra in that little silly season update that hopefully you're reading now on racer.com yeah spoke with our pals at carlin 
nothing formal to announce yet other than just reaffirming what they've said all along. We'll be there. We're going to be here full time with uh, one entry for sure. Uh, They can tell us with great assurity that formal announcements of what they're doing will indeed be forthcoming. So that's a positive compared to, we got nothing to say. So there's that on the Carlin front. On the Dale Coyne and Dale Coyne with Vassar Sullivan front, uh, names that I've already written about or mentioned on the podcast in past episodes compared to future episodes uh, all remain the same with the addition of good old, well, I think I speculated about him too. Good old Charlie Murphy chuckles himself. Charlie Murphy, a.k.a. Charlie Kimball. The four drivers that I continue to be aware of that are on the radar uh, chopping block? No, we're not going to go there. Uh, Just a final-ish to-do list, I believe, contains one Romain Grosjean from France. Uh, Mentioned before that Coin was very interested in him. Never a surprise. Dale's always interested in the latest person leaving F1 uh, and or young hot shoe coming out of GP2 slash F2. So that remains there. Uh, Who else did we speak about? We spoke about the delightful Pietro Fittipaldi. Uh, We know that Pietro is a pretty strong candidate to do something with the team. Can't tell you in what. So we have the, this is Dale's car, and then the other is, this is Dale's car with Vassar and with Sullivan. Can't tell you who might be in what or where, but Charlie Kimball, Romain Grachon, uh, our man, not just Roman, but our man, Pietro Fittipaldi, and then Edward Jones. Uh, Ed Jones, which I mentioned on the podcast here, uh, yeah, his name has returned He definitely was super impressive in 2017 as a rookie. Uh, That run of his at the Indy 500, pretty amazing there. Things didn't go so well as he stepped up to bigger teams afterwards, but I would say that he's still held in high regard by that team. I'd never heard anything negative about him uh, after he left after one year, but I would just say that, yeah, between those four I think we might have our two. Uh, the coin team tells me at least one driver is expected to be announced next week. Maybe two. Uh, the coin f- coin. The Carlin folks didn't give us a timeline uh, for when they might be confirming all. But again, hope that's not too far away. Andretti Autosports, the last one here really to get into, Ryan. And speaking of Ryan's, yes, we thought Ryan Hunter-Ray would be confirmed last month. It's never really been a question that he was returning after I wrote and maybe some others wrote he is returning. So since that came through as yes, uh, we are going to go forward and do a contract extension. Uh, That's never really been a question, but... uh, We were told at the beginning of December that, boy, we were imminent on the clock for that being announced. Hasn't happened yet. Team tells me we could maybe have one of those announcements happening this week. Whether it be Hunter Ray, I don't know. The other fun one we've heard about is the mayor of Hinchcliffe Town. Good old James, Jamie Jamerton. He, I have uh, heard, 
been working hard. He's been a busy little Canadian beaver out finding the final bits of money to finalize his deal to be full-time, not part-time, but full-time with Andretti. And I've only heard positive things in that regard as well. So what's the exact time um, when we would hear these things? I don't know, but I do think we might hear one uh, before we're done this week. And could there be a second soon after? I'd hope. It's really about it. There's not a lot left on the old silly season vine. So, yeah. Uh, before long, we could kind of sort of know who's driving what <laughs> at those racy tracks that we go to for our enjoyment. And uh, all kidding aside, yeah, silly season appears to be winding down. Would I be shocked if with, what, the next week-ish or so, Maybe by the time we record next, the next episode of the next week, not the part two that's coming up here, but uh, maybe by the time we get to part one next week, we might have as few as one and as many as three drivers, maybe, um, to talk about. That'd be pretty darn cool. Uh, let's see. Where do we go next? We go to Drew Wetzel, a new contributor to the show should mention to y'all and we've been having a lot more folks uh kind of reach out and say hey first time submitting a question please let me know love to uh love to call you out and say thank you and kind of introduce you to uh to the family um i'm we got a creepy uncle in there we got a spirit vegetable we got we got some got some strange ones there's kind of a subgroup of listeners uh that have assembled on their own known as the prue day um, so yeah, but Drew, thanks for, uh, stepping out of the shadows and, uh, into this crazy little collection of IndyCar fans says, uh, well, uh, he says, thanks for this great forum says, uh, love those old, old Hollywood cars referring to the Tony Kanon 2002 livery says, I'd like to learn more about how IndyCar and road to Indy teams operate financially Are many operated as profitable enterprises. Uh, or most teams labors of love from the wealthy guys and gals who have a passion for racing. How does one actually go about starting a road to Indy team? Well, funny you should ask looking for a partner, Drew. Um, this one is far easier to answer than if we're talking about IndyCar and starting an IndyCar team, there are some, permissions required before one can become an IndyCar entrant. First of all, IndyCar has to approve and, you know, unless the clan is trying to put together a team or, you know, unless we're talking, no, uh, Nazi motorsports, we're, we're probably not going to let you in. Um, uh, I can think of very few instances where, the series would deny uh, a team's entry. So nonetheless, IndyCar, and I know you asked about Road to Indy, but I just want to give a little bit of a contrast here, Drew. Uh, so the Road to Indy stuff stands out. On the IndyCar front, IndyCar has to approve your entry. So that's something where a n true new team owner, before trying to do anything else, 
would be wise to ring a J Fry or similar and say, hi, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Any foreseen issues with me coming to play in your series with that approval in place, that person could then go and buy a newer used Delara DW12 chassis, but you need a tire lease from Firestone. And again, uh, barring something like, no, we're not going to let Nazi motorsports use our tires. Um, they're not ones to really turn down leases or requests to have tires. So uh, good people at Firestone. Um, then we have great people at Chevy and Honda. And they, as you may know, Drew, maybe you don't, they hold the key to everyone's ability to be an entrant in the series. And they are great people. And I, I say that meaning it fully. There's a little caveat, though, and that is they can sometimes be a little bit choosier. Uh, they can be a little bit more selective in who receives their engines. Now, not necessarily on a full-time basis, full-season basis. It's more often than not, Indy 500. And since both manufacturers invest serious money each year in their IndyCar operations, meaning despite teams paying approximately $1.1-ish, $1.2 million per full-season lease, uh, as we've known for a long time now, each manufacturer still is operating at a loss in that regard. So while you don't see a lot of, no, nah, we're not really interested in helping you for the full season if you're committing for the full season, what you tend to get is a little bit of Indy 500. Yeah, we've got to do a lot of extra engine leases for the month. And uh, if we're going to actually spend our own money to help make your dreams come true, then even though you're paying us whatever the number is for the month, um, yeah, we're going to want to know who's driving for you, who's engineering, who your crew chief is, who your sponsors are. We're going to need to look at everything because we're at a new level and layer here, Drew, where we're having to decide, you know, we're having to pick. Do we go with this team, that team, or just say no in general? because we see no real value in partnering with that team or those teams. And so that's marketing value, uh, competition value, you name it. When you're actually losing money when signing a lease agreement uh, for the Indy 500 for the month of May, you can probably understand why Chevy and Honda and I'm sure any others that will come in the future probably be a little more critical when it comes to picking and choosing. So that's a contra in contrast to wanting to come and play on the road to Indy. Now, again, I'm sure the same filter applies when Dan Anderson, his daughter, Michelle Kish, the two of them who run Anderson promotions, Anderson promotions runs the three tiers of the presented by Cooper tires road to Indy. So the same Nazi motorsports that would try and get into IndyCar would be disinvited from doing the same on the road to Indy. But for the most part, uh, you don't well, you don't see that, thankfully. But no real barrier or concern here. Uh, also, there's not a lot of having to go and ask permission to join in. Obviously, the road to Indy has to accept your entry, but... 
if a team wants to go and buy a US F2000 chassis or a Indy Pro 2000 chassis, both made by Tatus, or they want to buy a Dallara IL15 Indy Lights chassis, and they want to go, there's not a lot that is sitting in front of them in terms of red tape, bureaucratic, you name it. So different engine supply uh, between the first two categories and the third. Uh, My good pal, old pal, Steve Knapp, Elite Engines, looking after the first two uh, layers of the Road to Indy, those Mazda-based engines, and then an Indy Lights, that is England's AER, Advanced Engine Research. And again, uh, all will happily make engines available. Uh, Cooper as well, happily sell tires and such. There's really nothing here, Drew, uh, to stop you if you wanted to. Say hi, I'm creating Wetzel Motorsportsdominance.com USA, and I'm entering the road to Indy on any of those levels. Now, final little thing here, and I know you're talking about more from the business side, but this is something to consider. Let's say you wanted to do this. You don't have much experience. You might have the necessary licensing to compete, but if you're a person that says, hey, I just bought an Indy Lights car, I'm going Indy Lights, and our friends at the Road to Indy know that it's an awesome purchase, and you can go and test all you want, but, yeah, we're going to say USF 2000 is really where you need to be. They're going to protect their interests there, as would any series. Uh, the My appetite is bigger than my aptitude. That happens every now and then, but not too often. But that's about the only thing where you might get some real pushback through. So back to close on the finance part. Uh, you can say that the vast majority of IndyCar teams operate to produce a profit. All are for-profit companies. There are no non-profit uh, IndyCar teams or Road to Indy teams. There are some IndyCar teams that are benevolent by choice, uh, some by demand. They are owned. They have to. They need to do it in order to keep going. Dale Coyne is the prime example in the paddock. He is someone who is successful in business, loves IndyCar racing, and long after he retired, made the decision to invest his own money into the team to put cars on the track. So this continues. It continu- It was taking place last season, paying for approximately half of the car that uh, Santino Ferrucci drove. I don't know what the percentage was on the co-entry that had Alex Pillow in it. I'm guessing it's probably in the same vein, half-ish, if maybe not a little bit more. But this is a guy who, provided his businesses are successful in generating the kind of profits that he needs to be able to then repurpose for IndyCar, he truly is about the last of the old-school throwbacks. Love racing, successful in business, it's... Instead of buying a yacht or spending a fortune jetting around the world playing golf at the most exclusive places, whatever high-dollar extracurricular activity that other successful businessmen or businesswomen might do, well, Dale's 
directed all that towards racing, which is pretty awesome. Um, there are a couple other teams that certainly come out of pocket a little bit. I mean, few believe that Team Penske has been fully funded 100% by sponsors for the last numerous years. Uh, that RP has come out of pocket. I mean, we've seen some events where you go, oh, well, that, that doesn't look so, you know, okay, you know, hey, if Penske Leasing is the sponsor on whatever entry for that weekend, that's awesome. Uh, but we can say for sure that that's maybe not been as solid as we want um, at all rounds every season for the past couple of years. We know that Ed Carpenter Racing, uh, something which was, which has had former IndyCar CEO, former owner, family owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Tony George, we know that when we look at the sponsors on Renus VK's car last year, uh, we can see and going forward, some of them for sure, Tony George's businesses. Uh, so call that an investment. I don't know how you want to, how we would phrase that drew, but we can say that for a person like Tony George, for example, who has many businesses, many interests outside of racing, not a total surprise that some of that comes back to support the team. Same with Roger Penske, who, you know, made his money not in racing. You look at a guy like Chip Ganassi, racing is his business. And so there's absolutely an expectation that this is a profitable enterprise. We can say the same about Michael Andretti. Uh, that racing is his business. Uh, now, <clears throat> am I saying these guys don't own a, <clears throat> a business park here or an apartment complex or whatever else? No, I'm not saying that they don't own anything else in terms of a business, but racing really and truly is their number one thing. And so, therefore, it's the engine that generates the funds that allows them to do uh, other things as well. So that's that on the IndyCar side. On the Road to Indy side, little bit of a slightly different dynamic. I would say think of all as true small businesses uh, and small business owners. IndyCar might classify as small you know, teams. Some of them might classify as small businesses. Compared to IndyCar teams, Road to Indy teams are absolutely very small businesses uh, and small business operators in play. They, by and large, are there to try and generate a profit I would say most do not generate significant profits, but this is how the team owners of these USF 2000 Indy Pro and Indy Lights operations do indeed pay for food, buy a house, put kids through college. This, that's the thing. And I can tell you, having worked for many Road to Indy teams back in the day, uh, it can be a very hand-to-mouth thing. It's a high turnover thing too, Drew, and I'm probably sharing things that you know. I appreciate this question too, and I'm going a little bit deeper into this just because there's a lot of facets to it. And Sometimes on this show, try and uh, explain things a little deeper than maybe you'll get uh, elsewhere. With the turnover rate, 
Right. It's not always common where a driver who comes into your USF 2000 team stays around for a second year or uh, stays with you for that second year. Maybe they go to another team. Maybe you had a bad year. Whatever the reason would be. Turnover is constant. This is... <laughs> I guess it isn't too far from thinking of it like someone who owns a tiny apartment complex with, you know, two, three apartments and you're just always on the lookout for tenants, right? And people are always moving out and you're always looking for folks to move in and you know the amount you need to charge, but maybe they don't have it. Maybe you're really fortunate for a couple of years where you ask a little more and you find someone who can meet that number, but maybe then they move on. They move out. Next thing you know, you're putting that ad on wherever it is um, for someone new to come in and they don't always have all the money that you want. They might run out of money halfway through the year, the equivalent of someone packing up and moving out halfway through a lease and you go, well, I make my money by renting these things out and I got to pay for the upkeep. I got to pay all the, everything that comes with it. And now who do I find? The turnover can be brutal. And so that's where the exposure level drew on the road to indie type stuff where you're really, you're at the college level, you're grooming kids to go up. Uh, it can be a little bit volatile as they drop out, want to transfer to another university, whatever, whatever dad loses his job, mom loses her job. And all of a sudden uh, their son or daughter no longer has the money to go. Uh, all this stuff that makes the profit margins a little bit slim and I would say just has the average road to indie team owner a little bit more on edge just because of the volatility. And it's not because of the road to indie. It was this way before the road to indie existed. In every series of junior open wheel series I've ever worked in, it's been this way and it stays this way today. It's just the dynamic of this kind of training ground uh, dynamic, Drew. Um, you then have one other thing too, which is a little bit different than you find in IndyCar. And that is, well, I'm successful in life, in my business, or maybe, you know, it's family wealth, whatever it is, uh, rather than pay someone else to do this, I'm going to start my own team. There was what a press release late last week that the highly regarded, Ex IndyCar team manager level, uh, more recently road to Indy level with Bellardi, uh, race Brian Bellardi's team. John Brunner had signed on to be the team manager for Abel Motorsports. Jacob Abel, 19 years old, a young talent developing himself on the road to Indy. Um, John's moving over since Brian sadly uh, had to shut down his team. So John's moving over to run that. Well, Jacob's father, very successful in construction, and said, hey, uh, okay, I could just give away a lot of money every year to someone else, or I'm successful enough in business to where, well, let me go buy a car and let me rent a shop or build up a shop and let me put our own people together. Therefore, like I've done with my own business, we can better control our destiny and surround ourselves with only the people that we want. If you look at Indy Lights, 
You look at the HMD Henry Malukas Drivers and GRG Global Racing Group. You have HMD slash GRG. And you have two families with success in life and the funding, enough money to be able to say, hey, not only are we creating our own Indy Lights team, but we're going to get together as two families and make it even bigger and become a multi-multi-car team. Um, same dynamic, uh, which runs in contrast to some of the other uh, Indy Lights entrants where this is their business where they expect to make a profit. So lots of different angles to this, Drew. Uh, as for the how does one actually go about starting a road Indy team? Uh, money, my friend. <laughs> go place that order with Tadis or Delara or see what's available on the market and start buying uh start making it happen and uh let me know if you need a old bad mechanic uh engineer team manager and um uh maybe i can get called out of retirement also mention here and this is again meaningless but hey popped into my head like most things utterly meaningless i am craving more and more and more wanting to get back to turning a wrench or I don't know about engineering. Uh, well, I love engineering is the thing I love most of all, but um, you really would need to commit um, to a full season, uh, uninterrupted season to do race engineering at whatever road to indie type level. But I do have a growing hankering to assist. And so part of my flawed brain in the last week or so has said, Huh. I wonder uh, at some point in time here in the near future, if I'm at race X covering it and such, if I might be able to volunteer with, you know, whatever road to indie level team and just help, you know, as a mechanic, as a whatever, uh, but just get back involved. The last time I ran a race car was 2010 at the 25 hours of thunder hill it was a oh my god i can't believe you spent more you spent over a hundred thousand dollars uh on developing this subaru wrx sti into a little touring gt-ish type car um ran that at the 25 hours of thunder hill and while i didn't particularly enjoy that i can just say that after 10 to 11 years of not running a race car getting my hands dirty mechanical type stuff um starting to miss it again uh and yeah so we'll see i don't know uh if there is a team that says sure come on over uh we'll have to seriously question their uh decision making skills uh where else are we going here uh chris albrecht hey you're taking over for our pal jim uh, y'all, you've thrown in haiku. You said Dixon the Iceman, a six-time IndyCar champ. Will it be seven? Oh, I'm so happy we got haiku back. So uh, thanks, Chris. Dan Gallagher says, what do you see as the number one non-COVID storyline this season? Oh, boy. That not only is a great question, Dan, it's got me a little bit stumped because... COVID is a pretty big one. And if there is no COVID being the number one 
what's the number one non-COVID storyline? I don't know if anyone's going to really care too much. We've already seen COVID affect us, so uh, with the calendar and whatnot. But if I really had to guess, I would say Ken Dixon, as Chris just haikued us with. I know that's probably bad grammarical. Um, Dixon, can he go for seven? That's a big question. Uh, And I really do think it is a big question. But that's for the insider IndyCar nerds like us. Probably the number one storyline is going to be that guy by the name of Jimmy Johnson and how he fares. I don't expect, as I've mentioned before, it to be super positive year for him in terms of finishing positions since he's not doing any ovals but yeah i think that's going to be something that certainly garners a lot of headlines hey jimmy johnson nascar champion jimmy johnson competing at name the track it's going to be that kind of thing like oh is there are there other people no oh it's just jimmy he's going to show up there in an indy car he bought off ebay and woohoo off we go uh let's see Got a lot of words here, so let me see if I can make this into something. Uh, this comes from our pal Easy D twelve fifteen ninety five. Says, "Hey Marshall, hope your family's doing well." We are. Says, "I have a question on the current IndyCar engine and its development. When the commentators talk about the horsepower of the current engine, they always say it's seven fifty. Says, I'm assuming that's on push to power, so about seven hundred horsepower normally. That is correct." Uh, the slightly below 700, just a tick over 700. Uh, when I pose the same exact kind of catch me up where we at question last year, uh, to one of the engine manufacturers, that is exactly what I was told. Uh, easy goes on to say, how much horsepower did they have on debut? Cause I know they changed the rules for 2014 to mandate twin turbos for both manufacturers, with Honda running a single turbo in 2012 and 2013. Did that bring us to the current horsepower figures? Um, I don't know what the initial number was. Uh, Asked many times. Uh, Rumors, 600-ish, low 600s, very low 600s. So not a lot, and certainly well below that, as I believe I recall in... Indy 500 Super Speedway low boost trim. I think 550-ish is what I recall reading. And again, I apologize, Easy, if if I'm off. I'm doing my best to recall back many years here um, without doing any research. Let's see. Uh, The reason in terms of the going to twin turbo, uh, and I know our pal John Norton from... Uh, Borg Warner Turbo hates when I mention this stuff, even to the point of sending me emails asking me not to. Um, we had a disparity in turbo performance that just could not be resolved when Honda chose single turbo and was stuck with that the first two years. Uh, Chevy went with twin from the outset, proved to be the uh, the better option. Um, if you just looked at the map of how the single turbo made its boost and at what range and how quickly and such compared to the twin, there, while very small, very small deficit, uh, there was, at least according to the teams, 
and even Honda that, hey, if we're talking equal and being able to equalize those who want to use a single turbo or, or twin, mapping-wise, we're just not able to get there. Or I should say we're not able to get there through to true equality. So were there events, obviously, that Honda won? Sure, Chevy did too, although Chevy won, what, the first five, I think, manufacturer titles in a row. But it's not as if Honda lost every race, by no means. Um, but, yeah, so they weren't able to create parity uh, to the level that they had desired. And so, therefore, they said, okay, everyone's running twins. So, yeah. Um, you also mentioned I was wondering about the power increase from engine development uh, so maybe you could guesstimate how much power the manufacturers will be uh, able to get out of the next generation engine after a few years of R and D. Um, at least talking to those that make the power and know uh, what they tell me is this. We're moving, as some of you know, from 2.2 liters to 2.4 liters, staying a V6, staying twin turbo. Where this is important, though, is you might say, well, 200 cc's of displacement is, I mean, that's not going to make crazy amounts of power in and of itself. And that's true. So if the current motors at 2.2 liters are at 700, what I'm told to expect with the new motors when they arrive uh, without any sort of uh kinetic energy recovery with no electric boost or power added in the number that they're targeting to start with in 2023 is about 800 horsepower uh, with this 2.4 liter motor where the gains are expected to come from i'm told is not just that extra 200 cc's it's the fact that they're not taking the current motor and then just stroking it up 200 cc's from 2.2 to 2.4, they're building all new, brand new, everything motors. Uh, the whole thing, top to bottom, brand new. So that's big. If we look at the rules that govern the current motor, the ones that debuted in 2012 and have been developed throughout, um, there's still been limitations like the heads, for example. Uh, the homologation rules have allowed, I think it's every two or three years, to recast and do new heads. Great. Sounds fantastic. The only problem is those heads have to fit and fall into the same dimensions of the original heads. So what does that mean? Not really allowed to do a whole ton of truly different, innovative, whoa, wow, type stuff. And that, in a very general sense, has kind of been the routine. So beyond cranking up boost and feeding more boost to the motors, um, we have a situation where each manufacturer, Chevy and Honda, has been developing their behinds off. And they've been making all kinds of gains, incremental gains, that have gotten us to this 700-ish number uh, after, what, eight, nine years of running the same thing. So that's great, but it wasn't a big number to start with. They've come a long way, but the rules have really limited them from making big, ah, we're just totally throwing this thing out, going brand new fresh. All the latest things we've learned, we're able to just draw brand new lines and start cutting metal. 
Haven't been able to do that, but that is what they're able to do with this new motor. And that's where I'm told there's a lot of expectations for power increases to come because all, a lot of the things have been wanting to do, but haven't been able to the things they've learned over the last almost decade. Well, those things can indeed get fed into this brand new motor. Easy goes on to say there's a bonus question. Says so I was listening to the Dinner with Racers episode with Ray Evernham. They asked him cheating stories. Uh, and he says he didn't say much, but he did bring up IndyCar. Something along the lines of, you wouldn't believe the things they did and are doing. Uh, can you share some of the, quote, cheating stories you know of? Uh, you don't have to name names. Thank you. Uh, I just love the stories. Maybe it could be a new podcast series. I've thought about that a little bit, but most of the folks that I would get cheating stories from, you know, it's funny. Uh, the amount of X racers who might share those stories on the IndyCar side, uh, they often have links in some way or still have an affiliation with a team that might be going on today. So at least the ones that I'm in and around. So I don't know how easy that would be. Um, to my knowledge, Ray has never worked in IndyCar, never done a thing in IndyCar. So I don't know how he would know uh, stuff like this other than what he was told anecdotally from people. So again, that's not uh, calling out Ray. It's just saying like, you know, I've heard lots of things that go on in NASCAR read about them, read stories about them, but I probably wouldn't position myself as a IndyCar guy saying, Oh, you should hear about what they're doing in NASCAR knowing I've never actually worked in that paddock, uh, to be able to say that from firsthand knowledge. Um, yeah. Cheating stories gone through some of these in the past, the, uh, soaking air filters, in uh oxygen rich material uh liquids um cheating by installing a second ecu i think i told that story recently on the weekend sports cars uh that would be bypassing the mandated series rpm limit by a couple hundred rpm uh, but being able to show at all times that you're complying to the rule because the ECU that you have on public display that can get plugged into by the series and the series doesn't know you actually have a second ECU hidden in the chassis that's actually running the motor uh, is allowing it to do things beyond what is truly, truly allowed. It's a lot of stuff like this. Um, there are some other stories. You know what I'll do? I will try and make a mental bookmark to ask a few friends who've told me some stories and this is stuff that they were involved in and see if they are good with me sharing them because while I can share their stories with you and most of our dear listeners and by not naming them or the team, or even the era would probably be something that wouldn't expose them at all at large. But since I do know that some of our dear friends in the paddock, even in the series happen to listen, uh, it's one of those things where, how's this? If someone else was doing an IndyCar podcast 
and was sharing some of those stories with no names, no this, no whatever, I know I'd be able to go, oh, it's that guy. Oh, they're totally talking about this guy and this team and that driver in that year. And so that's why let me uh, let me try and make a mental bookmark here and see if I can get a thumbs up to share uh, some of those stories. And if not, I apologize. Uh, let's see, Doogie Davies. Hey, Doogie, it's been a little while. Uh, with Indy moving to a new engine and chassis rollout, do you think financially, as well as generating diversity among engines and manufacturers, a partnership could be made with IMSA? Doogie says IMSA is also running a spec hybrid system paired with engines uh, of the manufacturers choosing. Instead of mandating, say, the twin-turbo V6 hybrid that's coming, maybe a combined engine formula could be allowed. That would give Porsche and Audi and Honda slash Acura and so on opportunity to build one engine and compete in multiple series. Great question. Awesome question and great question yet again. Uh, I'd say no. Um, well, let me rephrase that. Of course, a partnership could be made. Do I think one will? No. Uh, what IMSA's doing is meeting the needs of many, many manufacturers. In IndyCar, I'm not saying that they couldn't or shouldn't follow that same approach, but there's a very different dynamic here where the motors that are found in the DPIs and what's coming here in 2023, the LMDH, I realize that the chassis are spec, basically, from the four LMP2 chassis manufacturers. Each uh, engine or auto manufacturer strikes a deal with whichever constructor they prefer. That constructor then outfits that spec P2 car with their engine. They do custom body work to make it look a little bit more like maybe one of the road cars or whatever that auto company wants. But you get a custom prototype that has an engine in the back and this spec hybrid system, about 40 horsepower, we're told. And the motor specifically is kind of sort of free. There are some limitations, but not a ton. So it means that if there's a manufacturer that still says, hey, a non-turbo V8 is what we're all about, unapologetically, well, that's what we we're going to have. If it's, hey, we're a small four-cylinder turbo manufacturer, that's most of our road cars. Well, we got the green light to do that too. There are a number of other options that you can explore there in IMSA, but really it's down to the manufacturer to choose what they want to use that fits whatever marketing or R&D goal that they have and want to demonstrate and promote in IMSA's top class. In IndyCar, we're not talking full cars. Uh, we're talking engines, at least programs as well. And so therefore, I can understand IndyCar's ongoing approach of, well, uh, we're going to try and not give too much open exploration because that's where costs do really start to meander out of control a bit. And so far, Honda and Chevrolet are in full agreement saying, we're down, we're down with you. So yes, let's lock in the number of cylinders, number of turbos, maximum displacement, uh, minimum weight of the thing. Let's lock in a number of things. So while we do have creativity, there are a lot of, of bumpers put in place to keep us going down the right lane that we should. 
that's where the creativity that is compelling and allowed in IMSA that draws many manufacturers to it instead of open wheel racing say, that's why we want to go there. Um, doing that same thing in IndyCar, knowing that there would be differences in many cases in weight, right? The uh, prototypes certainly weigh a lot more than an IndyCar. Um, you start to get into some areas where, frankly, uh, they could try and come up with a common formula or the allowance for manufacturers to, say, make one motor and play with it in both areas. There's just another major stopping uh, point here, Doogie, where the thing that makes an IndyCar an IndyCar and allows it to perform at such a high level compared to a sports car prototype is the smaller footprint, uh, the lower weight, right? It is a missile-like thing. It doesn't have big old motor in the back that's both heavy or wide or tall. Um, this is where this spec-ish route uh, on the IndyCar motors does allow or does fit the needs of an IndyCar to then allow it to perform to the degree that it does. Um, that's very different than an IMSA, where not as if you want to put a big old fat porky motor in the back of the thing that A, slows it down, and B, just really screws up its handling and overall performance, but the average motor that plugs into the back of a prototype is not going to be something that would readily fit in the back of an Indy car. So since Indy cars, to make the speed and the type of performance that they do require small motors, powerful motors, but ones that are you know, comparatively tiny and light to what you would find in the back of a prototype, to do this, you'd have to throw out really the thing that makes an Indy car an Indy car and lose a lot of performance from it. Um, or go the other route and say, hey, IMSA, you need to make, tell your manufacturers to make far more expensive engines that are all tiny and light and high power. So that's just where you have a bit of a hard thing to overcome here to make this happen. Another thing too, which is probably uh, an equally as big a item to consider. So we know that Chevy and Honda play an IndyCar. We know that Honda, through its Acura luxury brand, and not Chevy necessarily, but General Motors through its luxury brand, Cadillac, play in IMSA's prototype classes. Well, by chance, Honda slash Acura uses a twin-turbo V6 there as well, difference being it's significantly larger, and it does truly have origins from its road cars. Cadillac, with its V8, what is it? I think it's a LS3 generation naturally aspirated v8 um this is kind of the thundering caddy type approach to things compared to the small jewel-like twin turbo v6 chevy and indycar what am i getting at they do different things in two different series to promote two very different approaches achieve different marketing and sales goals uh Honda on one side, Acura on the other, Chevy on one side, Cadillac on the other. If all of a sudden we have same engines running in both, 
I think there might be a struggle for some to find a reason to do both. I know it might be easier to do both, but if we're talking differentiation, something that the marketing folks and even the R&D folks that make the big budgets happen, uh, I think this is something where instead of getting more manufacturers playing on both sides, I think you might actually see one side lose uh, and the other side significantly win. Final bit here to throw in Doogie. We only have two manufacturers confirmed for LMDH right now in 2023, that being Audi and Porsche. I think we're going to see that number double, if not triple, before too long with Acura joining in. I think GM slash Cadillac is going to stay around. Lexus is a name that we keep hearing is going to come in and do something. Hyundai is another one that we keep hearing. And there are more. McLaren's another one we hear about. Uh, we could just end up with a place, at a place where LMDH just makes more sense to more manufacturers because of the rules and the freedom to come and bring kind of sort of what they want engine-wise, even though they're using a relatively low-power spec hybrid, uh, kinetic energy recovery system. Um, as part of that package. IndyCar, I'm not saying it doesn't deserve a rethink on engine rules. This is a great question. That's why I want to stay here for a little bit longer uh, than normal. It's a great question. I'm convinced, Doogie, that when we get to 2023, uh, well, hey, will we have a third in IndyCar engine manufacturer? I don't know. I'm not wholly convinced that's going to happen. I hope it will. Truly hope that it will. I am convinced, though, that IMSA's formula is one that, while it isn't cheap, right? I've heard that uh, for a proper two-car manufactured LMDH program, you know, some are budgeting fifteen plus million a year, if not twenty million a year, and you could certainly go higher than that if you want. Um, even though those numbers are higher for sure. Um, than anyone would like them to be. Uh, I would just say that manufacturers being given more freedom tends to be the thing that gets more of them to show up. It's just the unique constraints of an IndyCar chassis and what makes it perform that makes it a little bit hard to say, sure, bring over your sports car motor and plug it in and off we go. Uh, yeah, So, but there has to be a compromise doesn't there? There has to be some other way of going about this uh, where IndyCar wouldn't be so specialized that it is so hard to get manufacturers to show up. So I'm not pretending to have the answer, Doogie. I'm just saying it can't be an intractable thing, right? Um, there just have to be some reasons that aren't currently being given that would entice more auto manufacturers to want to come and do IndyCar. Just this common engine thing, there'd have to be some serious changes for that to make sense uh, on the open wheel side. Uh, Ian Keyworth, how you doing, Ian? He says, MP with Honda withdrawing from Formula One this year, uh, so can refocus its strategic goals elsewhere away from traditional engines. What does this mean for Honda IndyCar and its program there? says, appreciate you mentioned in the past it's run with a separate business. 
but surely there is some influence from Japan on global strategic goals and a desire to move to cleaner energy. You know, I would would throw Chevy into this as well, Ian, knowing that they've just come up with a new company logo meant to honor and acknowledge its growing electrification uh, initiatives and so on. I do think about this stuff, and I don't know if I would so much weld any of what has happened recently with Honda coming out of F1 and uh, all that stuff, uh, or, yeah, those plans there, and uh, IndyCar specifically, I think racing-wise, we are just going to have to think about the places where series that are heavily manufacturer-driven, they are absolutely going to evolve and say, hi, yes, okay, cool. Hey, you remember in twenty early in the early 2020s when we used a spec hybrid system or something that the racing series we were in told us we had to use? Yeah, remember those silly old days? Boy, it was, we, it was like dinosaur times. Now, uh, more than half of our horsepower is generated by uh, some form of hybrid electric horsepower that is based on our road vehicles. I just feel like, and I'm sure I'm very late to the party, it's not like I just thought of this today, admittedly, Ian, but I think we are certainly staring at a point in time right now where in IndyCar, in IMSA, both of them coming up to this hybrid realization following many years behind IMSA, I'm sorry, um, Formula One in that regard. Hell, the American Le Mans series was way ahead of the game here too uh, back in mid to late 2000s. <clears throat> this does feel like a first step for those who have not got jumped in on this hybridization. I do think we are not too far away, a generation away from instead of the internal combustion engine being the big contributor to how a racing car goes forward and the electric side being the smaller add-on, I just think we're going to see this continue to tilt uh, in a direction where the electrified part is bigger and bigger and bigger since that's absolutely what appears like in that uh, most major auto manufacturers are changing towards and pushing towards. So little bit of a not sure what the 2025 2028 window is going to look like in motor racing i realize that of course a series like indycar can say we're introducing a new motor in 23 it's got a five-year window we know that what was it three to five years i think whatever it was was listed for the current motor when it debuted in 2012 and we're well beyond that um i I'm not totally sure we're going to get to that 2028 in IndyCar or any other series that has outlined a similar, here's a bit of a long runway for doing this the way we're doing it right now with hybridization. Not sure how many of those series are going to be able to stick to that because it feels like the auto industry is moving at a faster pace. And ultimately, if Chevy, Honda, run down the list of all the manufacturers we can think of that are really have been committed to electrification or are taking big swings at saying this is what we're going to do as quickly as we can get there 
they're the ones funding the racing stuff. And it's going to be them saying, so this five-year plan, eh, maybe it's going to be three. Because, yeah, we're signed and we've got a deal, but you know what? Uh, look, this no. if this racing series we're in, where we're doing this hybrid thing, where the actual electrification side is the very small slice of the pie, the minute that starts to look and feel old-timey, and makes that manufacturer look bad in the marketplace because they're playing with it, yet their rivals selling tons of cars. We're not at that stage yet, but the minute these man, any manufacturer starts to look or feel like they're using old-timey technology is the minute they say, yeah, got to change now. So it just feels like this is going to be happening on a more aggressive timeline, Ian. Uh, Lake Effect Racing, you are one of a few people who've asked about an Indy Lights story, Indy Lights related story. Um, I believe Jalopnik is where this appeared first time. Um, Emma Kimelainen, I'd never heard of her, so that's my ignorance. Uh, you say, is that story real? Is the steam till around, still around? WTF, did they really think hatching that plan would work? For those who aren't aware, the story, as told by Emma, is that she was, and I'm paraphrasing because I've only had it paraphrased to me. I haven't read the actual thing. Uh, but long story short, was up for an Indy Lights ride. There was apparently a sponsor involved, and the sponsor require, would require her to pose nude for something. And she, rightfully so, told them to go F everything on themselves and did not take that up. Uh, as for is it real, I would say that doubting her would be silly. So as I understand it, this story came within a much longer interview. So it wouldn't strike me as some sort of made-up thing that she just put out there in and of itself. And it's gotten headlines. So... Again, I don't know her, so I'm not I can offer no insight to what she says or doesn't say, but I would just tell you that I wouldn't doubt her because I can't think of any reason she'd give anyone to doubt her. Uh I don't know the team. Uh again, this is total news to me and I think uh total news to just about everybody that read it. So what I can tell you, and this is a generalism, but it's still true, I've often found some undeveloped human beings, some who might say to a young woman, oh, cool, great, love to have you. By the way, take your clothes off in order to have this opportunity. Not the kind of comments or scenarios or requirements that you would hear from quality team, proper team, proper personnel. I know I'm giving you a little bit of a, a, a light portrait of things, I've worked with some folks on the junior open wheel level where I'm in my teens, I'm in my 20s. Hell, I was even in my 30s after I came back and did some stuff after I, quote, retired from IndyCar. And there's some people on the team where you go, where, where did you get this person or a couple of people? And there's always some stars there that are awesome who, you know, kick butt and you name it. But then there's some where you go, that guy genuinely scares me. There's one guy who I ended up, I, by chance, working with more than once. And 
I wish I was a more forthright person at the time, 15, 20 plus years ago, because he just struck me as someone who, God forbid, was left alone with a woman. Just such a flawed character, flawed everything, where, yeah, the guy can certainly do the menial tasks asked of him on the team. Okay, not great, but okay. But, Lord, please do not let him in a situation where he could be left alone with, I don't even, I'll just leave it at that. And you go, wow, uh, there's a part. (laughs) I know, maybe I don't know if this is getting a little bit off track on the Emma topic, or maybe it's actually zeroing in on the point. You don't find this so much in IndyCar, not saying there aren't, a few very unsavory types there you'll find that everywhere in all walks of life again a generalism but also a fact but uh, you'll find in some of the lower categories you know there are more folks who aren't fully qualified who are more hey yeah my brother my uncle my whomever such and such in law or a guy that i used to know or hey the guy across the street he's a mechanic so he's going to come out and help on the race weekends you know, road to indie teams are way more professional these days uh, than they were not so long ago. But there's still quite often an element of, yeah, not everybody here is going to work for Roger Penske <laughs> in a couple years' time, or Michael Andretti or Ed Carpenter. They're right. And again, this is where I spent most of my career, so I'm not talking shit about other people. I mean, I was there, I wasn't always great. So again, I'm just, as a person who does a lot of people watching and a lot of of observing and really trying to get a, a feel for those that I'm working around, I can tell you that there's a little bit of a carny aspect to motor racing, a little bit of a carnival thing where you go, oh, I don't know if I really want to pull back the cover and look at all everyone that's running this ride because I might not see what I really want to see. There might be some kind of scary people who hopefully we all get out of here alive, but uh, not everybody that's involved really would really should be here. And again, whether it's aptitude for the job that they do or wow, yeah, well, race teams always need volunteers, and it's always hard to find people. So when you have that scenario and someone raises their hand or makes themselves available, uh, the need quite often outweighs the full background check and character assessment. And I'm just telling you, I've worked with too many people, whether it is racist pieces of shit, sexist pieces of shit, the full gamut, but there's definitely a bit of a carny carnival worker thing that can go on at times. So I'm just sharing a lot of things. I don't know if it applies to Emma's story at all and the people that she was in and around. I'd love it if the people who were at that team identified themselves to me. That'd be awesome. But I can just tell you, is it real? I guarantee you Emma's story is not the first, probably won't be the last, sadly, but as our cat Rocky says hello. Hey, Rock, how you doing, bud? It's not always pure as the driven snow as we would hope, dear Lake Effect Racing, but I'm probably telling you something you already know. All right, we're, uh, what are we doing here? 
Wow. All right. I am going to try and mash the throttle and get through as many as I can before I need to go make Mrs. Pruitt's dinner. Yes, I know she lets me do this, but uh, she is still my number one priority. Sorry, y'all. I love y'all, but uh, yeah. Well, friends, that's the end of this episode, and this is actually being inserted well after the fact. Thinking that I would be able to knock out part one and a part one that includes many that I missed from part two, yeah, thought I could get it done in an hour and a half, maybe hour and 45. Well, it pushed out to almost three hours uh, last night, and so I'm going to cut it in half, which is what I've done here, and yeah, so it's the best thing I could come up with because I really didn't want to post a three-hour podcast to start off the week, and I still have a part two to do, so I do apologize for the mental math. I've taken part one here, split it in half, so this is truly the week's part one. I'm going to follow directly behind with a part two, and then uh, later in the week, I'll record part three, which is really meant to be part two. These aren't bad problems to have, y'all. Seriously. Uh, I just appreciate the interest and amount of questions, the growing listener base that we have, and as always, if you are a longtime listener or even a new listener, but sending in questions for the first time, please tell me so. So I can thank you and formally introduce you to the gang. So I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. There's more coming, y'all. 